The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hello, everyone. I hope you're having a great day and uh, happy past 4th of July. I hope you had a safe and a wonderful holiday. I have to tell you, I have received so many comments, all positive, of course, about our speaker today, and I am so excited. I love this woman. She knows I do. I've known her for a long time. I have respected her and still do. And, you know, when I first met her, wow, I would have never believed that person is someday going to be my friend. I mean, she is awesome. She is here this month because, as you know, this is ADA month. Every July, I try to bring on disability leaders that really had an impact on our community. And this one, national international, really part of our history. Welcome to the show, Judy Human. Hi, Joyce. Thank you so much. It's a great you know, introduction. I love you. Judy you. is the special advisor for the international disability rights with the U.S. State Department, uh, but she has quite a background. I, for those that do not know her. I want her to go over something, but before we do that, I just want to say um, how sad I was that we lost Ellie Vizel this this week, the other day. Right. I, I mean, what a champion, what a loss to the world. <clears throat> Such a great man. And Judy, I assume you were very familiar with him. Well, my parents uh, came from Germany and we lost my mother's parents and my mother's grandmother and my father's parents and one of my father's grandmothers and other relatives in the Holocaust. So Ellie Wiesel was a big hero of mine and because of his forcefulness, his truthfulness, um, and his never giving up on issues that people didn't necessarily want to discuss. So as a child of... Um, people who have lost family members in the Holocaust, he was a very important person in my life. I think the important part about him is his writings and how he has left a legacy through, for example, the Holocaust Museum here in Washington, D.C., and his books and articles, and I think he's an amazing part of our history and for people who are listening who maybe didn't know who he was, um, he wrote a book called Night, N-I-G-H-T, and um, I think it would be a really wonderful book for people to read. It's not a difficult read, although it's a very emotional and complex read. 
may I say, that is one of the most powerful books I have read. And in honor of him, I read it again the other day. And you know what? It's even more riveting when you read it again. But um, he survived the Holocaust at Auschwitz. I mean, it's just such a powerful, emotional, as you said, story. But boy, when I read it, it really brings home how absolutely horrible this was. You know, what human beings did to other human beings. And I, too, would highly recommend that you read that book uh, by Elie Wiesel, Night is just an awesome book. So, you know, once again, I just wanted to pay tribute to him for a couple of moments because um, Nobel Peace Prize winner, just such a great man and such a humanitarian. Um, and Judy, you know, a lot of people listening really don't realize what you've gone through. I always say there are people that know Judy as Judy Human today, you know, very... Uh, accomplished, worked at the State Department, worked at the Department of Education, so many things you've done. But I wonder if you would mind sharing for our listeners what it was like for you growing up as a child, um, I mean, with a disability, and what you went through at school. I'd be glad to do that, but I was just going to say, you spell Ellie Wiesel's name. His first name is E-L-I-E. And his last name was Wiesel, W-I-E-S is in Sam, E-L, Ellie Wiesel. Um, so the audience um, that, that's listening today, I'm sure, is composed of a broad uh, swath of people. And so let me say that I'm 68 and a half years old. And I had polio, I was born in 1947, and I had polio in 1949. And um, what is important to remember about that period is uh, President Roosevelt had died a few years earlier, and people uh, knew, obviously, of him, and some people knew that he had had polio, but many people didn't. But my mother did, and my father did. And um, as I said earlier, as German-Jewish refugees in the United States, um, he was a very important figure to them. So when I had polio in 1949, um, they didn't have my parents. I was the first of three children, and they really didn't know other families that had children with disabilities in uh, their lives. And so first they had to deal with when you had polio, uh, and I had it pretty significantly. I was in and out of the hospital for a number of years. So first they had to really address the fact that I had had polio. My mother was pregnant with my brother. Um, I had polio in August. She gave birth in September. So there was a lot going on in their lives. But my parents decided that they wanted me to live a life like everybody else. I learned when I was older that a doctor had recommended to my parents when I had polio, that they should institutionalize me, and my parents refused, but I didn't find that out till I was 36. But at any rate, my mom took me to school when I was five, and the principal said I couldn't go to the school. I use a wheelchair, and I don't walk, and I haven't walked since I had polio. 
And my mother at that time, this was in the 1950s, my parents were not asking for any kind of support from the school. My mother would have gotten me in and out of school and come and help me go to the bathroom and things like that, which I couldn't do. But nonetheless, the school said no. So I never went to kindergarten. And then from the first grade, second grade, third grade, and half of the fourth grade, I lived in Brooklyn, New York. The Board of Education sent a teacher to our house for a total of two and a half hours a week. So what's important about that part of the story is that clearly the Department of Education and the city itself was saying that those people who had disabilities had very low expectations because two and a half hours a week was less than the equivalent of one day of school that my brother and friends uh, were receiving. And I was very fortunate that my mother, you know, worked with me, but they didn't, there was nothing official like homeschooling like today. So it's not like the Board of Education sent to my family the kinds of books and work that was going on in school. They didn't send anything. Um, I graduated from elementary school, and I, I go step by step on this because, sorry, I, when I was in the fourth grade, I finally got to go to school, but in separate classes, only for disabled children, in a school building where all of the other children on the first, second, third, and fourth floor were non-disabled, and the basement, which is where I went, had children with disabilities. So my mother found out after I was like in the sixth grade that for those children who used wheelchairs, none of the high schools were accessible, and so students in wheelchairs went back on to home instruction if they wanted to get a high school education. So my mom organized with a number of other parents and was able to uh, get the Board of Education to make a number of schools accessible in each one of the boroughs. So I did go to high school, although it was not wasn't any of the high schools in my geographical area, so I was bused to another part of Brooklyn. But it meant that friends that I have still today uh, benefited from what my mother and other mothers did in New York to really force the Board of Education to do something at that time that they were not legally required to do. Um, I went to high school, and then I decided I wanted to be a teacher, applied to school, to universities, was accepted into Long Island University in Brooklyn, New York, and got support from the Department of Rehabilitation. My friend said to me, don't tell them that you want to be a teacher because they won't, rehab won't support you. The state agency wouldn't support me to get a degree in education. So I minored in education and I majored in speech and theater with an emphasis on speech therapy. I graduated from high school, I'm sorry, from university, and I went to pursue becoming a teacher. I took the oral exam, the written exam, and the medical exam. All of them were offered in inaccessible buildings. My friends carried me up and down the stairs. I was failed on my medical exam in writing, uh, specifically paralysis of both lower extremity sequelae of poliomyelitis. 
So that was a very painful uh, denial, but I decided with the support of my family and friends that I was going to try to appeal what the Board of Ed said. And it was kind of like manna from heaven. Um, A friend of mine worked for, as a stringer, for the New York Times at that time and got one of the reporters to write a story on my being denied my teaching job. And then I got a call from a lawyer who was writing a book um, on civil rights in the U.S. and he asked me if he could interview me for the book and I asked him if he would represent me. And he said yes. And then my father was a butcher and one of their clients came in and said he would like to volunteer his time. So I had two attorneys um, who represented me. We sued the Board of Education. We went to court. We had a judge named Constance Baker Motley who was the first African-American female judge on the federal court. And she basically told the board that she thought they had made an incorrect decision and they should go back and review the decision. So they did, and then I was given my teaching license. But then I had a great deal of difficulty finally getting a job. But I did, and I taught in the Brooklyn, in a Brooklyn school for three years. So this story, I think, for me, really <clears throat> is, was the basis for the work that I've done in my life, working with other disabled individuals to resolve problems, um, working with family members, and ultimately believing uh, that I could do something that other people had said I couldn't do, as could other disabled individuals, thousands and millions of us in the United States and around the world. Well, you certainly did a lot. Let me tell you that with what a story. Every time you tell it, I, I, I learn something new every time. And with that, we're going to get ready to go to break. If you just joined us, we have today Judy Human. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Judy. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Since 1985, Bender Consulting Services has served as a national leader in advancing employment of people with disabilities, including veterans with disabilities, with private sector companies, and federal government agencies. Bender assists customers with achieving their diversity and workforce inclusion initiatives by tapping into a talent pool of individuals seeking professional positions, including those in the STEM fields. In addition, Bender services include disability employment consulting, training and technology accessibility through their high-test line of service. For more information, please visit www.benderconsult.com. Hi, I'm Greg Grunberg from the TV show Heroes. 
One of my personal heroes is my son, who, like more than three million Americans, has epilepsy. When someone with epilepsy is having a seizure, their brain is temporarily producing more electricity than their body can handle. They can shake or stare or fall down. They can also even briefly lose consciousness. If you see someone having a seizure, please make sure they're comfortable and safe. And within a few minutes or less, the electrical overload will stop and they will be okay. To learn more, visit epilepsyfoundation.org. Thank you. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. If you have a question or comment, call in toll free at 1-866-472-5788. Now please welcome back the host of Disability Matters, here's Joy Spender. Hey, welcome back everyone. We're talking to Judy Human. Special Advisor for International Disability Rights for the U.S. State Department. Um, and Judy, one of the reasons it was so meaningful to me to have you as guest today, because you are a major part of our history. And before I ask you about that, you know, it always bothers me that we do not have in our education system something more about disability history than the ADA was signed July 26, 1990, because every time I bring in interns, college interns, they always say the same thing to me. Wow, I never knew any of this, never heard about any of this. It's amazing they never talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe someday it will be part of the school system. I know Do you in think a couple that's of possible? States, well, I know in a couple of states, California and West Virginia, I'm not sure what others, they have uh, a requirement now that disability history be taught as a part of the, I think, American history that students are learning. I don't know if there's any prescription around uh, the amount of time that the course has to be but, or that the instruction has to be, but I know in those two states for sure Students are getting something on disability history. I think it's very important, and I think it really belongs as a part of the discussion on the civil rights movement, and I believe that studying the civil rights movement in the United States is very important. So let me just really briefly say that uh, my job at the Department of State, um, and for those people who don't know what the Department of State is, if you travel outside of the United States, and uh, you need to get a passport. Uh, the passport is something that the um, State Department is involved with. Um, if you are someone from another country and you're needing to come into the United States, you need to get a visa um, from, to the U.S. That is something that the State Department is involved with, uh, both in Washington and we have embassies around the world. So if any of you have traveled overseas and you've needed to contact the U.S. Embassy, the U.S. Embassies in other countries are part of the United States Department of State. My job, um, because the State Department also is involved in what we call foreign policy. So Secretary Kerry is the uh, President Obama's appointee, and he is the one who leads the State Department, and he travels all over the world, uh, meeting with leaders around the world, negotiating issues around peace and in conflict, and he's also um, the supporter, as is President Obama, 
on the inclusion of disability in our foreign policy and diplomatic work. So as a disabled person with a small staff here at the Department of of State, we work to educate people who work in Washington and our embassies around around the world, encouraging them to talk to disabled people in their countries, to learn about what their problems are, and to look at how the State Department can work with governments and civil society and the business community to help remove barriers and create greater opportunities for disabled people around the world. Well, you are a big part of our disability history. Um, And I wonder if you would share, when I think about you in our history, I think about independent living centers. And I want everyone listening, you've got to know, Judy Human was this history of the independent living centers. Um, And if you haven't read the book, No Pity, you're really missing out because that's when I first read about Judy um, and what she did at uh, Berkeley and about that sit-in. So how about if you share that history with our listeners and then we got to figure out how to get, as Mark Bristow said to me one day, these podcasts somehow to different schools. So go ahead, Judy. So... Basically, in the 1960s, I know for some of you this is like old history, but um, what we saw going on in the United States at that time were people like myself and thousands of other disabled individuals who had graduated from high school and wanted to go to college and students who had more significant disabilities. So not just people who walked with crutches or braces, but people who were deaf, people who were blind, people who had more significant physical disabilities, and there were no programs on college campuses or very few programs on college, excuse me, college campuses to help students like myself be able to be successful at the university. And because at that time there were no laws or very few laws, no federal laws, very few state laws, that required things like accessibility of new buildings, Um, those of us who had uh, physical disabilities were frequently on campuses where we couldn't get into the building or we couldn't use the bathrooms. Um, And so we, we couldn't get our books. We couldn't get many other things because of barriers. So disabled students or disabled services offices slowly began to be set up on college campuses. In Berkeley, I left Brooklyn and I went to California to go to graduate school. At that point, a real example of inaccessibility at the University of California, Berkeley. But there was an organization that had started called the Center for Independent Living. And there had been an organization in the 60s that was uh, created called the Disabled Student Services Office. The Disabled Student Services Office at that time in the 60s and early 70s and still today uh, was set up to help students with a broad variety of disabilities. So today it'll include students with various learning disabilities, psychosocial disabilities, um, other psychosocial disabilities um, that at that point in time people didn't even talk about, students with autism, intellectual disabilities. 
that time the schools were basically focusing on students with physical and sensory disabilities. And um, these, the, the program in Berkeley uh, was very successful for students. And so people who lived in the community who were not students wanted to get some of the benefit. Because, for example, the Berkeley Disabled Student Service Office had wheelchair repair. And there was not a wheelchair repair program in the community. And so it was important for people to be able to get their wheelchairs fixed. Um, also, they helped people find places to live in the community off campus. There was no such service for, student, for non-students. So when the Berkeley CIL started in 1972, uh, it was really focusing on working with some students who had graduated with disabilities and others who wanted greater opportunities. And it was a very powerful organization uh, because it was cross-disability and it was working with individuals who were young through seniors and uh, we had very little money and we were very strong advocates. We really believed that it was time to change the medical model and it was time to help disabled people gain our voices and begin to demand more uh, from society overall. City government, county government, state government, federal government, um, universities, public schools, employers. So the first center started in 1993. Um, and then a gentleman by the name of Ed Roberts, who I'm sure some of you have heard about, and I know that um, Joyce has mentioned in the past. Ed was uh, the first director of the CIL in Berkeley. He then left and became the director of a state agency in California. And this agency that he worked for had responsibility, the Rehabilitation Services Administration, for employment of disabled people. And he used money from the federal government and the state government to set up an additional nine centers for independent living. So what was important about this? What was important is that the state director in Massachusetts, the state director in Michigan, saw these programs with Ed as very important, empowering disabled individuals, providing employment for disabled people, uh, looking at setting up opportunities for disabled individuals with a broad array of disabilities to become self-respecting individuals who wanted the same opportunities as others. Um, in 1978, the uh, National Council on Independent Living was formed, um, and today, the National Council on Independent Living, which is based in Washington, it's an umbrella for more than 700 centers for independent living. And the Berkeley Center and work that I've done and many others has really helped spawn uh, centers around the world. The Japanese now have 150 centers. Um, which, again, are these community-based, non-residential advocacy organizations that do services. And we're seeing these Centers for Independent Living in many countries in Asia, in Europe. There's a European network on independent living. Um, there's also a similar set of uh, 26 Centers for Independent Living in Canada. There are a few that are starting in Africa, Central America, and in Latin America. So these organizations, you can find out more about them 
just go online and look for the National Council on Independent Living. You can identify the center that's near where you are and check them out if you or a family member might uh, wish to learn more about what they're doing. But they really, in my view, have been, uh, the centers have been the backbone of much of the uh, progressive work that's gone on in the United States with laws like Section 504 and the Americans with Disabilities Act. Yes, and still today fighting for rights, for example, with people in uh, nursing homes or just trying to have people have their own uh, independent living. So, yes, I agree with you. When you they first came on, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. A year. No, they serve thousands and thousands and thousands of disabled people a year. Nickel, N-C-I-L dot O-R-G. Right. As Judy said, if you need help, N-C-I-L dot O-R-G. Kelly Buckland, great guy, is the executive director. Um, and, I, and I always tell families if you, or someone, if you need help, that's where to go. And they'll, Judy, they'll, I, I wanted you to just website, say... If you go on their uh, website, it'll give you, broken down by state, the centers. Sorry, Joyce. No, no, that's all right. Uh, Judy, when you first came on, you were talking about the State Department. Um, and I will say, in my life, no one has had an impact on me as you have about people with disabilities throughout the world, which I think is so easy for many people, you know, in the United States to not be thinking about. But, you know, a as everyone knows, I have epilepsy and a seizure here is a seizure anywhere in the world except in other parts of the world. Um, you either, A, may not have medication, B, be shunned, uh, C, think that you, you know, are demon-possessed. Uh, but as far as the seizure itself happening to you, it's the same. So, Judy, I wanted you to talk for a few minutes. Your opinion, um, what... What do you think at the U.S. State Department, how important do you think it is for you to work on this international basis for people with disabilities? So in 2006, there was a treaty that came into force that was um, developed at the United Nations with hundreds and hundreds of disabled people from countries around the world. It was modeled on the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, there are approximately 1 billion people with disabilities in the world, at least 15%, and 80% of those people live in developing countries. The State Department, as I mentioned earlier, has embassies in, country, in most countries around the world. And the Americans with Disabilities Act, amongst other laws, is something that we really have been working to help people in these countries understand um, and to help our staff in offices around the world because the ADA and other laws, as Joyce talks about regularly, really is the reason for the dramatic changes that we've seen in the U.S. over the last 40 decades. Um, disabled people in many countries, as Joyce was also saying, are highly stigmatized. Um, they live in communities in many countries where there is no accessibility of the built environment, 
of housing or streets or public transportation. The largest group of children around the world that are not receiving educations are children who have various forms of disabilities. That means that as they get older, their prospects of employment are lesser because they have poorer quality education. They experience the same kinds of discrimination without the protection of laws that we have experienced and continue to experience in the United States. But in the United States, we have the benefit of many laws that allow someone, if you believe you've been discriminated against, to file a complaint, to go for mediation, and as a last resort, to file a lawsuit. Um, So we look for opportunities to bring people from other countries to the U.S. to learn about what we've been doing, to encourage uh, disabled people's organizations in other countries, and to get governments to uh, collaborate with these organizations to learn about the types of legislation that needs to be developed in order to implement the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities in their countries. Uh, The United States has signed the treaty. We have not, unfortunately, yet ratified this treaty. 165 other countries around the world have ratified the treaty. So we are seeing international organizations run by disabled individuals, groups like the World Blind Union, the World Federation of the Deaf, um, Inclusion International, which is a parents' rights organization, um, and many others that are really working to get laws effectively developed and implemented so that disabled people and their family members in other countries can see the day down the road where they have opportunities like we have here. I also want to say that, um, you know, disability in the U.S. and around the world is not just those of us who were born with our disabilities or had them early, uh, but many people acquire their disabilities when they're 15, 20, 25, 30 um, seniors, and they acquire various kinds of disabilities. In many countries where uh, war is a part of what's going on or various forms of conflict or um, sexual abuse, Uh, many of these individuals may acquire one or more disabilities, certainly post-traumatic stress disorder and other forms of psychological disabilities or physical disabilities are commonplace. So what we continue to try to do is say, look to laws that we've been developing in the U.S., look to opportunities to be able to strengthen what's going on in your countries, and equally importantly, remember that a very large population, at least 15% of people, have various forms of disabilities, many of which are invisible. Right, and as I said, in certain parts of the world, well, many of those developing countries, the stigma is absolutely horrible and access and no access and no uh, wheelchairs. I mean, it's different, of course, in in every country. But this CRPD, now, I noticed that uh, on the campaign trail here that Secretary Clinton mentioned that, uh, you know, and how we have to work to get that uh, ratified. 
if it was ratified, which God knows, I don't know why it isn't, but once that happens, what will that do? What will that do for, uh, what will we be able to do to help people throughout the world? Ratification would be a sign of leadership on the part of the U.S. It would allow the U.S. to be able to come in as an equal player with these other 165 countries that have already ratified. It would allow us to more forthrightly say to other governments, look, you've ratified, but you need to do uh, pass laws. Enforcement is critically important. You're not doing enforcement. It puts us in a different position. For the person in the United States, um, U.S. engagement as a country that ratified can also be working in a way that helps remove barriers so that individuals who wish to travel abroad, study abroad, work abroad, will have greater opportunities to be able to do that. Um, The voice of the U.S. is certainly a part of what's going on internationally, but our voice is, quite frankly, weakened by the fact that we haven't ratified. Every time I travel to another country, people are asking the question, why have we not ratified? I continue to say that President Obama and Secretary Kerry and the administration are very committed to ratification and that we hope that ratification will come uh, sometime in the near future. But it would be a very important um, treaty for the U.S. to ratify, both to be able to provide opportunities for those of us in the U.S. with disabilities, but equally importantly from the humanitarian side to be able to show other countries what they can do in order to be able to remove barriers to get this 15% of disabled people to be productive members of their communities. Now, Judy, will our listeners know, would they know when that vote is going to come up again, if it does come up again, or I should say when it comes up again, would our listeners know so they could uh, contact their senators? So, you know, the U.S. does not... State Department doesn't engage in domestic work. We can share information uh, with colleagues on the work that we're doing and learn from others about the work that they're doing. So I would say that organizations in the U.S., uh, when the opportunity presents itself for the Senate Foreign Relationship Committee to begin to do more work on the treaty, organizations like the United States uh, the United States International uh, Council on Disability, USID, um, look at their website. Uh, they're on top of what's going on. It's unlikely that there will be a vote this year, but hopefully uh, we could see progress being made next year. Well, you can be sure I'll be letting you all know because between USID AAPD and just friends of ours will know. And when that happens, wow, I can't emphasize to all of you how important those calls are when you want something like this to happen. It has to happen. This is so important. This is really important. So I will keep everyone on target uh, with that because, oh, my goodness, what a difference that would make and what a happy day that would be for Many people, not just here in the United States, but throughout the world. And you I, mean, know, I think the people who are interested um, in the uh, Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, 
uh, you could go online. You can read the, the treaty. It's not very complicated. You can see that the treaty is uh, really developed looking at the same principles as we have for the Americans with Disabilities Act. And for those of you who want to dig down deeper, uh, there is a committee out of Geneva as the CRPD committee, and every country after it has ratified uh, is requested to submit a report to the treaty committee so that a review of the work that the country has been doing can be can occur, and then the committee will write recommendations that they uh, would like the countries to um, implement. Now, the committee itself has no legal authority to make a country do anything. Uh, it really is the, the members of the UN, which the U.S. is, and those who have ratified, gives us the opportunity to really um, encourage other member states to do the right thing. If you ratify the treaty, do the right thing, implement it. For the U.S., um, a number of years ago when we began work on the treaty, uh, it's important for people to know that we would not have to make any changes to our existing laws because uh, the U.S. government believes we are in compliance with the treaty at the moment, and there would be no financial obligations uh, on the part of the federal government or state governments uh, because we believe we're already in compliance with the treaty. So those are very important things not to worry that um, it could cause problems for the U.S., not at all. In fact, we very much believe it allows the U.S. to be the leader that we are and would strengthen the leadership role, enabling people to look more deeply at what the U.S. has been doing and how it's been helping to improve the lives of millions of people here. And very bipartisan, because I have to yes. say that uh, two governors from the state of Pennsylvania, Governor Ridge and Thornburg, both testified in behalf of seeing this happen. And, of course, Senator Harkin uh, was a major uh, force also. But, uh, you know, keep tuned in. I'll keep you tuned in. But, you know, it's something very important for us to see happen. Uh, I speaking about, of history, I just I'm want sorry, to say one other thing something? that um, former Governor Thornburg was the Attorney General under uh, President Bush mm-hmm. in 1990 when the Americans with Disabilities Act was in fact passed, and so and and former Governor uh, Thornburg, who then became the Attorney General, has, as Joyce said been very engaged and spoken uh, from the beginning of the discussions on the treaty about the importance of the U.S. maintaining what he calls the gold standard, the ADA as the gold standard, and working with other governments and civil societies around the country to help them learn about the gold standard, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Yeah, and I know he's talked to me about it. I know he is very passionate about that, So, uh, as are so many others. 
and as a child with a disability, he has lived and breathed uh, fighting for the rights of people with disabilities, as has his wife, Jenny. They are just wonderful, wonderful people, and I know they, they and the whole disability community were so excited last year celebrating the 25th anniversary of the signing of the ADA, and it was a great celebration, but, you know, it's not the end. I mean, we have the next 25 years now uh, and beyond to be working and moving forward, and someone actually asked me this question. They were a leader in the disability community, and it was that, you know, there was such great momentum of everyone working together as we move forward with this celebration. Uh, celebration's over now, but we've got to keep that momentum moving. Uh, what do you think? What do you think we could do to make that happen? Well, I think in the United States, it's one of the points that you raised earlier, Joyce, and that is ensuring that people know our history in the U.S. Because, you know, uh, younger people have no reason to know how the ADA came about or more importantly, what the ADA has uh, resulted in. People just think that accessible buses and accessible trains and uh, bathrooms in buildings and accessible buildings and braille signage and sign language interpreting and captioning and audio description, people think that this has always been there. And it hasn't. And it's because, first of all, disabled people have worked really hard to get these changes made, and also it's important that people know about this so that they can continue to advocate for changes. Um, You know, when you think about social media and the technologies that are available today and that are continually changing, people need to understand that these technologies can be made accessible, must be made accessible, and that people, particularly younger people, Uh, Not only disabled people, but younger, non-disabled people need to be knowledgeable about and keep working to ensure that as our country and the world evolves, that disabled people are not left out. Right. Yeah, we've that that is so true. Though as I've said this before, we have to do something about this understanding of our history. Uh, and keep passing it on because when I go do volunteer work for high school students with disabilities and talk about any of this, you know, they have no idea what I'm talking about. So I'm going to follow up actually on those states that you mentioned because I feel very strongly about this. Um, and, and we just got to keep, we got to keep pushing it. We've got to keep pushing it. Uh, you I mentioned think- about young people. What message do you have for them, for youth with disabilities? Because uh, we have a large listening audience of youth with disabilities, and in the summer it's very large because of school being out. So what message do you have for them? I think you need to dream your dreams. I think you need to work to achieve your dreams, study as hard as you can in school. But I also think it's important to reach out and look for programs in your communities that you can volunteer with, that you can get mentors from, Uh, going back to organizations like the Centers for Independent Living, learning about them, what they're doing. Many of them have programs for youth, Um, but looking at what your area of interest is. So, you know, if you're interested in science or you're interested 
in information technology or you're interested in ecology, um, you know, look for opportunities to learn more. Um, if you're in a religious uh, organization, you know, speak to your, ra- you know, your rabbi, your minister, um, your imam, whoever it may be, to tell them you're trying to do more, you need more opportunities, would they please help you identify someone uh, in the community who could help you learn more? Look at things like the uh, Chamber of Commerces in your local communities. See if they have a, a project that is working with youth and tell them that as a disabled youth you'd like to be involved. Look at what your brothers and sisters and your friends are doing. Um, and there's no reason you can't be doing the same. Um, if you're 16 or older and you have an IEP, um, the law requires that uh, doing what we call transition planning must start to happen in school by 16. Some states it's 14. But I think what's very, very important, like what I was discussing earlier, I wanted to be a teacher. People said I couldn't be a teacher. I wouldn't have become a teacher if I didn't have a couple of things. One, if I hadn't studied hard in school and gotten the grades that I needed to be able to qualify to become a teacher. And two, knowing that this discrimination occurs sometimes against those of us with disabilities, believing in myself, you're believing in yourself uh, strongly enough so that you know there is something you can do and you're going to work to get it. Yeah, that believing in yourself is so powerful. Uh, and sometimes, you know, it's just not listening to what other people say because uh, even in school, sometimes people lower the bar. But that, it, it is twofold. It's believing in yourself, but you have to study at the same time. I think, you know, can't have one without the other if you want to move forward. But believing in you, that is so important. Um, well, Judy, I mean, you're like a great example for everyone. I just got to tell you, I just am so excited to have you on the show every time because I feel like I have uh, an example of great disability rights history right here with me on the phone in addition to being the wonderful person you are. And you have already done so many things, like you've already talked about some of it, but you've accomplished so much in your life. If you had to think what your greatest accomplishment has been up till now, what would you say that is? I hope it's being a mentor and a colleague to disabled people in the U.S. and around the world and uh, to never giving up. I don't think there's, you know, like one particular success. I feel, you know, very privileged to be a part of so many aspects of the disability rights movement in the U.S. and internationally. And it really is a humbling experience to see the changes that collectively we are making. At the same time, when I travel around the world and I see the terrible conditions that many disabled people are living in in countries around the world because of significant stigma, because governments are not focusing attention on disabled individuals as they should because countries are poor and many people are not benefiting overall, including disabled people. Um, For me, it's if you believe something is wrong, you need to speak out about it. 
If you believe something is wrong, you need to fight to make it right. And doing it alone is, in my view, not the way to do it. Doing it in collaboration with other people is always important. And working not just within the disability community, but working with the civil rights communities, the religious communities, the labor unions, and others, because disability cuts across all of our society, rich and poor, middle income. Uh, People acquire their disabilities at birth or during work or just something that happens. Um, But we can never give up. And I just saw the movie this weekend, uh, um, Finding Dory. Mm Mm-hmm. It's a great movie. I loved uh, Finding Nemo. Nemo's in this, and I think this is a great story about a fish with short-term memory loss and how she gets lost from her family and how she doesn't give up and goes through all these excruciating trials and tribulations. And in the end, because of her strength and the ability of people, of people, fish and all you know, creatures under the, in the ocean, uh, she in fact makes it back to being with her family. And I think it's a great story that um, is an example of what we all need to do. Yeah, and by the way, that movie is really uh, making millions. It's very popular. So who would think? That movie would have something in it that's a connection. Isn't that amazing? A lot of disabled characters. So she and, yeah, many of the fish, and it's very, it's great, actually. That's awesome because that's good for the people going to see it, especially the young people. Yep, and the older people, I have to say. Well, I'm going to see it, so I'll let you know. It's an intergenerational film. Yeah, uh, Judy, thank you so much for being with us today and being on the show. It is always an honor to have you as guest. And it's an honor to be friends. Thank you yep. so much, everybody. Yeah, that's right. And we end every show with a quote. So today, it has to be, even in darkness, it is possible to create light, said Ellie Wiesel. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at Voice America. Talk to you next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.